began when I was 14, when Leeds briefly acquired a resident orchestra, the Yorkshire Symphony Orchestra, based in the town hall, where it gave regular weekly concerts. It happened that the leader of the orchestra, Reginald Whitehouse, was a customer at my father's butcher's shop, and often gave us complimentary tickets. And since the schools, too, were encouraged to go, with seats practically given away, from 1948 until I went into the army four years later, there was what amounted to a free concert every Saturday night. Today's assumptions about the welfare state would disparage and even condemn such undiscriminating municipal benevolence, lest it promote in the recipients indifference, ingratitude and a readiness to take for granted something they got for nothing, the catchphrase always invoked being the nanny state. We did not take it for granted, or, if we did, were not ungrateful for it. Indeed, when I was seventeen or so, I could not have imagined my life without it. I've never incidentally understood why, in such disparagements, it's always the state as nanny. In my own case, the state, or rather the city, as mother was nearer the truth. Our seats were behind the double basses, the cart horses of the orchestra though cart horse, as any crossword addict will know, is itself an anagram for orchestra. Laid on their sides, awaiting the arrival of the players, the basses looked as chipped and battered as the steep wooden steps we just clambered down. Behind the basses, though, was a good vantage point for watching what went on in the rest of the orchestra. The nudges and winks the players sometimes permitted themselves, the looks and smiles that signalled the start of a flirtation, and also the degree of scepticism with which they treated the histrionics of the resident conductor, Morris Miles. I loved it, though, when the strings wooed their instruments, rapped when they had the melody, and hearkened to the sweetness of their own sound. It was the strings that alerted me to the fact that an orchestra has a class system all its own, of which the strings are the aristocracy, the intellectuals the woodwind, and the proletariat the brass, and that the players take on the characteristics of their instruments, brass, jolly and fat, clarinets and bassoons, soulful and reedy, most of the raffish romantic players in the violins and cellos. Of course, it's not hard for the strings, who so often have the melody, to seem transported and full of feeling. They have none of the handicaps of the brass, and had they to stop every so often to empty the spit out of the violins, it would be a different story. Concerts on the wireless then were decorous affairs, with no callow young man bouncing in half a second after the final chord of Elgar's violin concerto, with the news that this was number three on the week's classic countdown, and no notion at all that the proper ending to a work of art is silence, even if a token one. With no musical skills at all, at seventeen I lived for music, and virtually commandeered the only wireless set whenever there was a concert, so that Dad, fond of music himself, became sulky and irritable, seeing this as yet another of his son's affectations. I gleaned music at odd moments of the day, too, so that when I came home from school for my dinner, I made sure it coincided with concert hour. Afternoon school began at 2.15, a ten-minute tram ride away, but I'd never set off until after two o'clock, 
just so that I could catch the orchestra swinging into the main theme of Nikolai's Merry Wives of Windsor, then the signature tune of Woman's Hour. It was only as the music faded that I'd run across Otley Road, hoping there'd be a tram coming up the hill which would get me to Lawnswood on time. One forage for music then, each week with its regular radio highlights, Anthony Hopkins talking about music, Sunday Morning and Music Magazine, edited by Anna Instone and Julian Herbage, names to be added to that redolent roll of broadcasters, the very sound of which calls back that time. My taste was, of course, for the lush and romantic. I knew I ought to be slightly ashamed of liking Tchaikovsky and for not caring enough for Mozart or anybody earlier, though I did relish the great Bach chorales from the St Matthew Passion, the performance of which was always a feature of the first Monday in Holy Week at Leeds Parish Church. There were lots of boring bits, it's true, but I just thought the recitatives were the price one had to pay for the chorales. For all my taste was crude, and though I had no performing skills, I was nevertheless a missionary for music. In 1951, as its contribution to the Festival of Britain, the Yorkshire Symphony Orchestra put on a festival of English music. Unsurprisingly, it was ill-attended. Vaughan Williams was thought untuneful and difficult then, as was Walton and even Delius. The town hall was regularly half-empty, prompting me to write impassioned letters to the Yorkshire Post, condemning the citizens of Leeds for their musical conservatism. The truth was, I wasn't much more enlightened myself. Music was an emotional fix, and I treated it as such. In the last six months of my national service, I was stationed at Bodmin, and one night a few of us went down to Truro for a concert in the cathedral. The second half consisted of Schubert's ninth, and in order to ensure I got the full emotional charge, I shifted away from my companions and went and sat ostentatiously in a side-aisle so that the triumphant inexorability of Schubert's last movement might properly sweep me away. My friends must have been a tolerant bunch. Music then conducted one to a region where all was set to rights, and where one's loggings were, if not fulfilled, at least transcended and triumphed over. It was a dangerous game. I would have done better, I think, now to have listened less to music and gone looking instead for some of the stuff I dreamt about when I was listening to it. Not that listening to music had much to do with happiness. What it seemed to do for me was to open up a realm of possibility, as later in life America did. The possibilities were probably illusory in both cases, but I was not to know that. Listening to the great striding tune at the end of Brahms' first, I found it possible to think that one day it would all come right, though what that it was I would have been hard put to say. Love, I suppose, was a part of it, though I never dreamt of love fulfilled, only of love transcended. Rise above it seemed to be my ideal. When I see young people today plugged into their players, I wonder if that is a part of what they're feeling, and that their happiness too is not in the here and now, but on that plane to which the music transports them. Sometimes, though, it was in the here and now. Hearing Der Rosenkavalier for the first time, 
and seeing it for the only time in 1951, standing in the gods at Leeds Grand Theatre, I felt I had been set free. And I suppose that is indeed one of the blessings of art, a sense of release, or, as my mother would more prosaically put it, well, it takes you out of yourself. Music nowadays seldom has that effect, though the cinema does occasionally, and I can come away from a good film thinking that all things are still possible. But I was an odd, unfinished boy, and came to many things backwards. I knew, for instance, all about the final act of Der Rosenkavalier, where the Marcheline renounces her love for the young Octavian and gracefully gives way to Sophie. I knew already that my lot in life would be cast with the Marcheline, with renunciation the rule. At seventeen, it was already my story. But the first act, which opened in the morning with Octavian and the Marcheline in her bedroom, was lost on me. It never occurred to me what Octavian might have been doing there. I think I just thought he'd popped round for breakfast. As a boy, I was resigned, though never reconciled, to what I saw as the back of beyondness of where I lived. Life in Leeds was desperately provincial and unexciting, so concerts in the town hall had another function in that they would sometimes bring to the city fabled creatures from the world of the wireless. Sergeant, Barbie Rolly, and even Beecham. Still, so famished was I for fame that I must be one of the few boys who could see Sir Adrian Bold as in any sense an exotic and even a glamorous figure. Bold seemed of another age entirely, an Edwardian, and which he certainly looked, a contemporary of Elgar, whom, with his walrus moustache, he also resembled though what he looked like too was one of those inflexible generals Sir Hubert Goff comes